This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Marco, have you been ice fishing this winter? I know that's a winter pastime that you like on top of cross-country skiing. No, we haven't really had a winter yet in southern Quebec. But we are looking at two days, two nights of minus 20 over the next couple of days. So I'm planning to go next weekend. Um, I was away until last weekend anyway, but uh, it just hasn't been cold. Uh, oh, my goodness. It's the new normal. Uh, so, Well, our... Not yet. Our abnormal last week where we live uh, in Cranbrook, BC, I think last Wednesday broke a 113 year low record. Previously yeah. it was minus 22 and it was minus 27. We saw, what did we see Curtis temperatures down into the. When I, when I went out, uh, cause we got uh, chickens and horses. So Saturday morning I was up at, I don't know, probably four thirty, five o'clock out checking everybody and messing around with heaters and when I went outside on the Saturday morning uh, the thermometer out on the deck said minus 38 and luckily we're in yeah. a pretty secluded area we don't have have a lot of wind chill but it was yeah it was minus 38 and <laughs> we got a thermometer in the coop and I think it was minus minus 27 or 28 in the coop there's usually mm-hmm. about a six to ten degree difference and it was it was it was cold out there. I yeah, no, was so cool, cool chickens. I messing with heaters, but I have a brother in Edmonton that I think four or five nights when he went below minus forty, which had not happened in Edmonton for years. But again, you know, you go back a few decades, that was normal, and now people freak out. Yep. I mean, this was an exceptional cold spell, but uh, yeah, people but, forget but that this used you. to be normal. <laughs> so you no, don't have, as yeah. in, you don't have safe no, ice to ice fishing. Uh, no, not yet. Well, it was 
too cold to go ice fishing. So maybe this weekend yeah. for us. So, yeah. Oh, geez. I, we had some fellows on, um, a few episodes back that, uh, have a brand called pit water fowlers and they're down in the Fraser Valley and they have a really long duck season down there and they're still out duck hunting like right now. And mm. their pitchers are like green, green grass in the Fraser Valley. And they're still out there duck hunting. And I'm, I'm almost like, I'm going to, I'm going to report your, their pictures for being offensive on social media. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, people, but, people were posting pictures of, uh, cherry blossoms in England in January. It's, uh, yeah, it's nuts. That's, yeah. That's just, that's just wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, that's Canada for you. Hey everybody. It's Mark, your host. And it's Curtis, your co-host. The Hunter Conservationist podcast podcast is proudly sponsored by J. Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, BC. Jesse Martin's passion for hunting and wildlife and fishing evolved into a commitment to preserving hunting memories through unparalleled taxidermy artistry. From majestic big game to elusive game birds, trust J. Martin Taxidermy to bring your hunting memories to life with an unmatched skill. Visit jmartintaxidermy.com to preserve your hunting legacy with the best guy in the field. And that's Jesse at J. Martin Taxidermy. As always, <clears throat> we're very proud to have J. Martin as a sponsor of the podcast. We greatly appreciate his support of us and what we do here on the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Cool. Yep. Thanks to J. Martin. That's, uh, yeah, it's just great having you on board and and uh, helping us do what we do. Marco, welcome back to the podcast. This is your third show with us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So, folks, this is uh, Dr. Marco Festa Bianchet from University, Sherbrooke University uh, in Quebec. And uh, we had you on the podcast. We were just trying to remember, it was a couple years ago. It was a January 1st episode where we talked about um, the work that you were doing in Alberta with bighorn sheep and the effects of hunting on evolutionary changes in, in horn length. Um, we're going to dive into that topic again today because I think it's just it's just a really important uh, topic uh, to, to really, uh, we just really want people to understand it. Um, so I think it's worth revisiting. Um, this is part two in the series uh, on on um, horn evolution in, in mountain sheep. So we're super excited. Marco, you're, uh, I, I, I tried to summarize this real, real succinctly for folks. An evolutionary scientist, population evolutionary You could call scientist. me that, yeah. Evolutionary ecologist, yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Ecologist as well. And you're a hunter. Um, that's that's yeah. super exciting as well. And uh, I remember you shared some stuff with me a few years ago. Your father was a hunter, that did a lot of chamois uh, and mouflon hunting in the Alps uh, when you were younger. That's, that's uh, kind of cool to see the multi-generational hunters that are actually become scientists. I think we, we need lots of that in this country. You're well known for your in-depth research into um, evolutionary effects and population 
effects in mountain sheep, mountain goats, uh, chamois, and ibex uh, over in Europe, as well as you go to Australia every year uh, studying um, kangaroos there as well. So that that's we might have to do that as a podcast on its on its own because I I know when you go down there I'm always following you know what you're doing into such a different different animal. So on the topic of your research, uh, especially the Alberta research on um, intense selective hunting pressure leading to an evolutionary change in the horn length of bighorn sheep, uh, that's for years and years and years now that has made its the circuit around North America, maybe the world um, in the academic and the hunting community. It, for whatever reason, seemed to just cause a lot, lot of controversy that's, that's followed this, um, this research. I have seen an uptick over the last year of this topic coming up again and your work from Alberta, um, which is why I just, and, and we've, I've been asked questions. So that's another thing of people wanting to know what's going on in, in Alberta. And um, I've heard your research discussed on podcasts in the United States. I've heard you a couple of times, people speaking to your work on the Meat Eater podcast. Uh, I've seen articles written by Meat Eater and others about talking about your work. I, having had you on the show a couple years ago and talked to you a lot behind the scenes, you know, I have a good understanding of your work. I definitely don't know everything about it, but I know enough to know when they're not representing your work properly. And I've reached out to some of these um, authors down in the States and got some really, really strange responses. One uh, was an author that wrote for Meat Eater. And I, I said, you know, I think you misrepresented Marco's work. Do you want to get a hold of him? Because I, I, I can give you his email. Uh, he's given it to me. And the response I got was, I'm not really interested in what his interpretation of his work is. I'm free to represent it however I want. And I was just like, whoa, man, that's not talking, talking the truth. And one of the things that I've wondered is these shows and these articles and stuff on get opinions on your work, it seems, from everybody else that has an opinion on the subject, except for you. Have you ever been on other podcasts speaking to your work? No, you're the only one that will talk to me. Other people okay. talk about me, but uh, no, none of these people yeah, have that's... ever uh, reached out to me. And I made attempts uh, to reach out to some of them. I tried for many years to talk to the wild sheep, uh, the Alberta section of the wild sheep society. They keep saying they're going to listen to me, then they never do. I made, I reached out to uh, the Boone and Crockett uh, trophy points. And again, they said, no, we don't want to talk to you. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm seen as the bearer of bad news. And so uh, that's why I appreciate being on your show, because I need to talk to hunters partly to counter this sort of propaganda poison and, uh, you know, to use a technical term, bullshit that's being spread around about my work. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. if people don't want to talk to me, they won't hear what I have to say. 
Yeah, that's that's the part that I found really strange is that, you know, people have they're super interested in in the discussion or the, or the topic or or your work, but they've gone about it completely uh, around you rather than, you know, rather than coming to you. So we're really honored to have, have yeah, you Yeah, well, hunters hunters feel under attack. And so anything that has been interpreted as my work has and used by anti-hunting groups, you know, there's a circling of the wagons and, you know, everything that comes out of that guy is bad. So that's, I think, I think that's the situation we're facing. Right. Yeah. I, and I see the same thing in trapping, you know, something comes out, some scientific research and the response is, is like, Oh geez, there's just like shitting on trappers again. Right. So mm. we're, tr- we're trying to get past that. We're, you know, um, you know, science is an underpinning of the North American model of wildlife conservation. It's a big part of what this show is about is science communication, uh, advocating for science-based wildlife management. So, uh, science is what it is. It finds and discovers things. Sometimes we like it and sometimes we don't, but science is science and, and we just want people to understand it. And, you know, um, you know, I think that's the first step is just, just to understand, uh, what it is now. Your your work on the effects of selective hunting on horn size uh, extends beyond just the Alberta bighorn sheep. You've looked at bighorn sheep and California sheep and their age structure and horn size related to hunting and hunting harvest in British Columbia, as well as stone sheep data from uh, north western BC in the Skeena region. So hopefully we can kind of dive into some of that, um, that work as well. And you can just, I'll, you can draw it in when, whenever you want. But the central question I want to turn the show over to you now with is when, from your work, when does selective hunting lead to evolutionary change in mountain sheep? Okay, so there's two important things to remember, and they're specific to mountain sheep. And one is their biology. And as I said, large horns help you get a lot of matings if you survive to seven. But if the legal definition, you know, what can get shot makes you legal when you're four, your negative selection getting shot comes in two to three years before your positive selection getting a lot of matings. Now, that's just a characteristic of how the bighorn sheep mating system is set up that makes them very vulnerable to this kind of evolutionary consequences of selective hunting. But clearly, what is really important here, what is the dominant issue, is what is the probability that a legal male, a legal ram, will get shot? And we don't have a lot of that information because you need to know how many legal rams are available and how many are getting shot. And this is why all this talk about, oh, we're only killing 2% of the population, 8% of the rams, that's completely irrelevant. What is relevant is what are your chances of getting shot if you're a large horn rams before you're seven years old. And the little data that we have from Alberta suggests that the probability of getting shot if you're legal varies depending on the region, but is somewhere between 30 and 70%. Uh, the long-term study around mountain harvest rate of legal ram was about 40%. That means that if you're legal to hunt when you're four, 
your chances of making it to rot as a seven-year-old are about seven to eight percent. So we're talking about the same intense selective pressure that people apply to domestic animals. You want cows that produce more milk? Well, you select your cows that have the greatest milk production. You want your dogs to be aggressive? You select the dogs that are aggressive and you put, impose a very, very intense selective pressure. And in the space of two or three generations, you can see measurable, uh, measurable change. I can tell because the place I come from in the Alps, the stables that were built in the 1700s, the cows now cannot get in because they're about a third bigger. So artificial selection works in domestic animals. If you apply the same strength of selection to wild sheep, you get the same thing. You get animals with smaller horns simply because if your horns are two or three centimeters shorter, it's illegal to kill you. So you survive another season. You get a better chance of breeding. And that, I think, is another important point that needs to be brought across because people have been saying, oh, you know, Marco's research or he's claiming that horns are, you know, 10, 15 centimeters shorter. No, the evolutionary effect is in the order, you know, over two or three generations of big horse sheep, 21 to uh, 28 years of selective hunting, somewhere between two and three centimeters. So much of the variability that you see is caused by environment. But those two or three centimeters are enough to make it so that, for example, in Alberta, if you look at what was getting shot in the 1980s, in some years up to a third of the harvest were rams age four and five. Now rams age four and five make up typically less than 10% of the harvest. They're not legal anymore. There's been an evolutionary change that's made them uh, smaller. Now, the next thing you can do is look at what happens in other jurisdictions. And you mentioned our work on stone sheep in British Columbia, and that work was very, very revealing because there is two large areas in British Columbia where stone sheep are being hunted, the skin and the piece. Neither one of them has got a huge selective pressure, but hunting pressure, but in the piece, the access is a lot easier than in the skina. So for example, much more of the harvest in the pieces from resident hunters in the skin as almost all outfitters and foreign hunt and uh, non-resident hunters. In the skin, there's been no change in horn size over the last 25, 30 years. So low hunting pressure, lots of males, this large horn male that survived to be seven, eight years old, no evolutionary change, sustainable trophy hunting. In the piece with a much higher harvest rate, we've seen a decline in horn size, a gain of about maybe two or three centimeters. Uh, so that leads to a decline in the harvest because if you're two or three centimeters shorter, you don't fit the legal definition of full curl, et cetera. Uh, the latest work that's come out, and I know uh, you'll probably be talking with David Hick and uh, Nick Larter about this harvest of uh, uh, doll sheep in the Norwest territories, their definition is three-quarter curl. A three-quarter curl ram is legal. So it's a very liberal definition of legal ram, but because the hunting area is so inaccessible, when you look at what's actually getting shot, it's mostly rams that are nine years of age and older. So it's not a big surprise that they find no evolutionary change. Most of the males, that are, most of the rams are getting shot have had an opportunity to breed. Even though the hunters are still selecting for the ones with the largest horn because they want to bring home a trophy, they're not killing those males before uh, they have a chance to breed. If you go back to the situation in Alberta, 
if you become legal as a ram in August, you have a very, very high chance you get shot by September. And one other element that suggests that is if you look at what outfitters are taking, you know, foreign uh, non-resident hunters, they're paying $30,000, $40,000 to get hunt a big horn sheep in Alberta. Um, the rams they're taking are not any bigger than the ones that uh, the residents are, are taking. Um, there are not very many big rams left. The few that are left are the ones that are coming out of national parks. So you see some of these big rams getting shot in the last week in October, when rams are moving around looking for breeding opportunities and they come out of the national parks because, partly because, you know, suppose you're number three or four in the hierarchy in a protected area. Well, you go out into the provincial land where most of your competitors have been shot, you're the top dog. But if you go out before the hunting season is over, you have a pretty good chance of getting shot. And in much of Alberta, you see the second peak in the harvest in the last week in, uh, in October. Those rams are a little bit larger once you come for age and they're a little bit older. And the harvest moves about three kilometers on average, say 30% closer to the boundaries of national parks. And you don't see this peak in harvest in areas that are far away from national park. So you would have a possibility of genetic rescue if that was not happening, because you would have unselected rams from the national parks coming out, breeding with ewes in the hunted areas, and that would diminish the impact of uh, the selective hunt. But because the hunt is open until the end of October, and hunters are quite well aware that, you know, if you want to get a ram, it's either the first few days or the last few, an unknown proportion of those rams uh, is getting shot. And I don't understand the argument of people that are saying, you know, rams' horns are getting smaller because we're not killing enough ewes, there's too many sheep. And that just flies in the face of the evidence that once you come for age, rams in the national parks where there's no hunting of ewes, they're bigger. And I think they're bigger because there is no selective pressure from, uh, from the hunt. Uh, in fact, some recent modeling work that we did suggested the very high intensity hunt outside the park could actually lead to a decrease in uh, horn size inside the park. So mountain sheep biology, the way the mating system is set up, is really making them vulnerable to this evolutionary change in horn size. And if you have a very, very high intensity of selective hunt, you get evolution. I mean, it's not... You know, sometimes I'm amazed that people even question this because, you know, evolution through natural selection or selection leading for evolution and inheritable character is something that we know since the time of Darwin is a fundamental tenet of uh, biology, not just of evolutionary ecology. You have an inheritable trait, horn size, a morphological definition of legal ram, which means that if the ram is more horned, it's illegal to kill it. It's got a free ticket to survive and breed because it's competitor getting shot. And you put on top of that somewhere between 40 and maybe 60, 70% harvest rate, you know, it's like, it's inevitable. So we know how to fix this. And it's not that difficult. You need to lower the harvest rate. British Columbia as a full curl minimum horn size, that probably adds one, one and a half year to the age at which rams are getting shot. So even with a fairly intense hunt, um, you get more of these large horn rams that have an opportunity to breed. And the recent data from the Norwest Territory, you know, if you kill rams when they're nine years and older, you have no problem. 
there was a recent study that compared uh, foreign change over time in Alberta and a number of jurisdictions in the states. And again, not surprising, they're finding strong declines in Alberta, more or less, well, some declines, but more or less stable in much of the US. Most of the American states have a much, much more stringent uh, anti-regulations. So that the proportion of large home ramps that survive to seven years or older is much higher than what we're seeing, for example, in Alberta. Mm, okay, okay. So, so sort of the key structure that a hunting regulation would have that puts this sort of hunting-induced evolutionary effect on the mountain sheep is the horn restriction that allows the intense removal of very young rams um, because they're not essentially the dominant breeding rams doing most of the breeding. Like you said at the beginning, they get they sneak in a little bit of the breeding, um, but they're getting killed and a, and a large number of the young rams uh, are getting killed like three or four years before they reach that critical age, seven and eight, where they would, they would take place in breeding. So, Right. And it's not, it's not just young rams. Uh, it needs to be a fairly exceptionally developed ram to be legal at 40 years of age. But those are exactly the rams that you don't want to kill. Most four-year-old rams are not legal. I mean, right now in Alberta, nearly all four- and five-year-old rams are not legal because there's been evolutionary shrinking of horn size. So it's not as much a question of age, but the faster your horns grow, the sooner you get shot. And we see this in all jurisdictions. If you look at stone sheep in British Columbia, uh, bighorn sheep in British Columbia, bighorn sheep in Alberta, and you measure the annuli, if growth in years in the second, third year of life is you know, if they've got good horn growth, they get shot when they're younger. If you look at the ones that are getting shot as, you know, nine and 10 year olds in those provinces with high intensity of hunting, the horn growth in early age, again, the second or third years of, of, uh, of life is like 30% less. So they get shot when they're old because they're not legal until they're maybe seven or eight, uh, which is something else that, you know, uh, hunting manager can look at and say, well, you know, what's happening in terms of the early growth of the, um, of the of the horns, uh, and uh, the other point is also not only there is a morphological restriction that tells the hunter you cannot shoot a ram with small horns, but there is an unlimited number of permits. So success rate in Alberta these days is less than five percent, uh, mostly because you know people cannot find uh, legal rams, and when the number of permits goes up, the harvest goes up a little bit, the success rate uh, goes down. But clearly there is a very, very strong, uh, excuse me, the selective pressure that's put upon these rams that are legal is similar to what we see with domestic animals. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure much of your listeners are farmers and they know, you know, if you got cows, if you want to produce milk from your herd of cows, you don't sell the best milk producers you do the opposite and with sheep we are doing the opposite now in your your work in alberta um it 
help me if I get this right. It was either in your study area was, or was it all of Alberta where the four-fifth curl, uh, the one that you're talking about, which is allowing the intense selective uh, of anim- the, the selective pressure to be intense early in the animal's life, um, changed in 1996 to the full curl regulation. Was that all of Alberta went to full curl for a while or just no. in the area that you were doing your research on? Because you're maybe explain what you saw in that, like in your data, um, horn curl and the genetic responses under the four fifth versus the full, yeah. the full curl change. In 1996, a few areas in Alberta switched full curl. The Ram Mountain, where the where Ram Mountain is, and the southern area, sort of south of the Crossness Pass. Unfortunately, Ram Mountain that coincided with a couple of episodes of intense cougar predation, and our sample size went to pot. So I cannot answer your question: What happened? You know, when you switched full curl, because there were hardly any full curl rams. Because after many years of very intense selection and also several years of high density, so horn size had declined also because of the, the high density, uh, it went to full curl in 1996 and it stayed at full curl for about 10 years. And then there were so few rams that they shut the hunting season on completely. There's no hunting on a mountain now. Uh, I think there were four rams shot over those 10 or 12 years and two of those were clearly illegal. In the southern part of the province, when they went to full curl for about a couple of years. There was almost no ram that was taken, which again tells you about how intense the selective pressure was because the first year that they said, okay, you can only shoot full curl, not four fifth. There were almost no full curl rams because all got shot as four fifth. Beginning about three years later, the harvest built up and, uh, it never went back to the level that it was at four fifths because that that that's inevitable. The idea is to kill these rams when they're older. There is some natural mortality. If you're targeting nine-year-olds, there's not going to be as many around as if you're targeting five-year-old because you know there is some natural mortality that goes on, and that's just something that you know people have to decide what they want. But clearly, if you are moving to full curl, uh, the number of available rams for the same population is going to go down. And uh, really, there hasn't been enough uh, years of monitoring to really st- tell what uh, what's happening. Unfortunately, the other thing that's done in Alberta at about the same time, they brought in a few of these uh, what they call rat hunts. So you can apply for a you know there's a general open season that closes in the 31st of October, but in a few places there is a draw for a permit to go hunt sheep, uh, you during the rut, and. That is why it looks like the number of rams taken in Alberta has not declined over time because a substantial proportion, I forget the number, I hesitate to say because I'm, I'm worried I may be wrong, but I think maybe 20 to 30% of the overall harvest is these rat hunts in November. And those are mostly rams that are coming out of national parks. So to me, that was a major mistake, but you know that's what uh, managers uh, decided. So in most of Alberta right now, it's still a four-fifths of a curl. Okay. Okay. Now your, your work in Alberta showed like you're measuring horns, um, 
you know, for decades and decades, and you showed that over those decades and successive generations, the ram horns were slowly getting smaller. But this, the hunting pressure that was causing the evolutionary change favoring the genetics of slower growing horns only explain part of that shrinkage, right? And, and, I, and you showed that there were other things, density, um, climatic events, combination of, um, like I think there was um, spring temperatures played, played a role and then some variability that, that wasn't explained. So, so horns were shrinking in, in the rams, but hunting wasn't the only thing causing that. It wasn't just the evolutionary changes. Is that correct? Like there's a bunch of things at play here. In fact, most of the variability yes. in horn length wasn't hunting? Yes. Most of the variability was environmental. So uh, population density. Uh, I mean, one other interesting thing they were finding is climate change is actually leading to bigger rams. Because, you know, when you look, I mean, when you look at the work we did at Ramonta, we had the pedigree, we used the an, an animal model, we use exactly the same techniques that people use in quantitative genetics for domestic animals. When they want to decide, you know, we want domestic sheep to produce more wool. Uh, we want horses that run faster. You know, we want, there's a goal, it's a goal-oriented selection. And that clearly showed that there was a decrease in the genetic component of horn size. While that was happening, uh, because an experimental removal of use or amount that was stopped in the, the early 80s, the population increased in density substantially and that had a negative effect. The number of ewes in the population tripled. So when people say, oh, it's all explained by density. Yes, density had a huge effect on a mountain because the total number of sheep, that sheep doubled and the number of ewes tripled. We're not seeing that on a broad scale in Alberta. Overall, the population is stable. So we're not seeing the kind of huge density effect that led to a, an effect on, on horse size. But clearly, if you look over the long term, what affects changes in horn size, uh, genetic changes driven by artificial selection are not nearly as important as uh, environmental factors. And the other thing, again, is age. You know, if, uh, if you have a population with 10 and 12-year-old rams, they've got bigger horns than if, you know, most of your rams are four and five-year-olds. The other crucial thing that really needs to be pointed out is that when the minimum size definition on Ram Mountain changed from four-fifths to full curl and essentially the hunt was stopped, the genetic decline stopped. So we have essentially experimental evidence that when you remove the selective pressure, the evolutionary change stopped. Uh, by then, our sample size was small, so we couldn't show a significant uh, recovery, but definitely the decline, uh, the decline stopped. Uh, but clearly, I mean, you know, there is no question that if you're looking at variability in horn size within a population over multiple population, the first thing you should look at is habitat and population density and, um, and weather. Right. That doesn't mean that, uh, genetics is not important. I mean, there was an excellent study that just came out 
that show the population that had been affected by pneumonia show a negative effect on pneumonia on horn growth of the rams for multiple years, you know, another environmental effect. So there's all sorts of things that happen uh, that affect uh, horn growth of, uh, of rams. But when you compare, you know, the skina and the piece for stone sheep in BC, and you find a decline in the piece and not in the skina, it's pretty hard to say that, well, you know, density has gone up in the piece. It has not. Weather hasn't been changing linearly. You know, global warming is happening in both places, uh, not just in the piece. So that leads to the conclusion that, well, probably the reason why there's a difference is that the hunting pressure is much higher in one area than in the other. And the same with this uh, wider analysis has been done comparing Alberta with a number of jurisdictions in the States where they did take weather into account and did find some effects of weather. But at the end, the main difference was Alberta with a very liberal season, very strong uh, selective pressure, horns are shrinking. Most of the jurisdiction in the States, they're not. Hmm. Which again, and you know, the point that really I, I want hunters to understand here is there is a way to fix this problem. And it's not rocket science. It's not that complicated. You should not have a situation where if you're legal in early August, your chances of making it to the rut, you know, in early August when you're four, your chances of making it to the rut as a seven-year-old are less than 10%. Um, if you, if there was no hunt, like if you're not a legal ram, your survival from poor to uh, rut at age seven is about 60%. So you're looking at 60% survival for a ram that doesn't become legal until he's eight to 7% survival for a ram who's legal at four. It, it's a huge difference. Right. You know, okay. it's like if you want your, your you know, you, you prefer black cows as opposed to white cows and you kill 90% of the white cows, your cow herd will have more black cows. Right. So it's not so much that, that, the hunting pressure, the selective pressure is for the four-fifth curl. It's that the hunting, selective hunting pressure is for four-fifth curl younger rams, but it's a lot of pressure. Like like a lot of those yeah. rams are being taken. Yeah. So if, if I were the manager and said, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, a reasonable number of the hunters get a ram the four-fifth curl um you know allows hunters you know to get a ram but i can't allow everybody to shoot one this year and next year and the year after so if they went to a permit system and said we're gonna like say cut the number of rams that are taken by half but left the four-fifth curl restriction in is that going to alleviate that intensive pressure by simply reducing the number of animals at well, the young age that are taken? Yeah, the straight answer to your question is yes. Okay. But the, main, the more important question is, do we, do we want to do that? Right. So we have a situation, for example, in Alberta, where people are used to the fact that they buy a trophy sheep tag and they go hunt sheep. And like I said, the success rate is less than 5%. But a lot of people like the idea that you know, I want to be able to go hunt sheep, even though my chance of getting one is very, very small. If there's about 180 rams that are shot in Alberta every year now, suppose you wanted to bring that to 100, you probably couldn't give out more than maybe 200, 250 permits. 
So I forget how many licenses are being sold re recently, but I think it's about three to 4,000 people buy a sheep license. It would mean that probably maybe one in 10 of those people could go hunt sheep. And that would remove a huge chunk of the public, which is very supportive of sheep conservation. Because while we're having all this discussion about horn size and evolutionary, and you know how bad I am because I've been talked about as an anti-hunter, what are really the problems for sheep conservation? Uh, domestic sheep, disease, habitat, and increasingly global warming. So you don't wanna lose a chunk of the population that is really pro-sheep, which is what sheep hunters are. So what are the alternative solution? solutions? Uh, if you went to full curl, it would probably add maybe one to two years of life expectancy to the ram. So that would be a very good idea. And the other thing that they know they can do, and in fact, uh, biologists in Alberta have proposed it and it's been um, shot down, is uh, close the season in mid-October. Let those rams that are coming out of the national park breed in the hunted area and bring in genes that have not been subjected to strong selective, uh, selective pressure. So I think there's ways that the managers could act that would not require going to uh, a draw. I really don't like the idea of a draw because, I mean, one of the other issues, you have no idea what the success rate would be if you go to a draw. Yeah. Uh, you know, right now it's 5%, but obviously, you know, if you go into a, a drainage and there's 10 hunters, there's one legal ram, well, only one's going to get it. But if there was only one hunter, he or she would probably get the ram anyway. So it's hard to tell how the, you know, the success would uh, would change. But the two issues that I think could be acted upon, and again, this was proposed by uh, unanimously by Alberta Fish and Wildlife Biology several years ago, and it was just shot down because people realize that there is a problem, but they don't, well, some people anyway, don't want to do anything about it. So move to full curl, close the season, uh, probably in the middle of October. Because that that is the season that existed in Southern British Columbia for, for bighorns. And you've worked with the BC Wildlife Federation um, looking at bighorn harvest data uh, and ages and, and that sort of thing when the province first proposed that they wanted to go from the general open season full curl restriction in BC to the permit system. Uh, if I remember right, even your expert opinion of it is there's no, you, you don't see anything in the harvest data in BC that a general open season full curl needed to be further curtailed. Not Really, if you look at the age structure of rams shot in BC, they're much older than the ones shot in Alberta. We do see an increase in age in the last few years, which does suggest that there's maybe a, a slower uh, growth of the horns. Um, again, I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that going to a draw, and again, if you really want to cut down the number of rams, you really have to curtail the number of permits because inevitably the success rate will go up if you go on a draw. You know, you get a better hunt, you got fewer people disturb, uh, harassing you. So the interesting thing in BC is BC's had the general open season on full curl rams like for yeah, a long time. About 40 years, yeah. Yeah, it came is around the 60s. And I remember looking at you know, the harvest data of full curl rams since the 60s. 
and it hardly ever fluctuated. It was a general open season, but there was always about like around 60 to 80 rams a year taken out of the East Kootenays, like all the way back to the 60s. And it wasn't until just in the last decade or so that that dropped from about an average of 60 a year to like 10. Um, but that hmm. was always a general open season and all those hunters could go out. But it didn't matter that everybody had the opportunity to get a sheep tag and go out on the mountain. The same number of rams were basically being taken. Um, I don't know this for sure, but I think part of it was, is dedicated sheep hunters knew where to find rams and they could find big rams and they were successful. So it was kind of like the Pareto principle, right? There's probably 20% of the sheep hunters where I live, we're getting 80% of the rams over the last 40 years. What we've kind of seen ha happen since they went to the permit system, the draw system, is all those locals are out of the picture now because they're not getting drawn. Like your chances of being drawn now are like once in a lifetime. Um, so people from elsewhere in the province are just going, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll apply for this bighorn in the Kootenays there somewhere. They get drawn, and and we've seen this. We've seen on forums, it's sort of like, hey, does anybody know where, you know, I could find a bighorn? Like, mm -hmm. they don't know. They don't know the land. They don't know where to go. They don't know yeah. what basin. They don't know where the trails are, all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I think we're down to like just, you know, eight or 10, 10 rams being taken. Of course, what hasn't changed in that equation are the outfitters. Their knowledge is still there mm -hmm. and their yeah. success rates are still up because they know how to get a ram. They know where to find yeah. them and they can get yeah. and kill big rams every year. But I think the success of the resident hunters is going to go down because people that don't know the area. And of course, if you draw this year, like that's it. You're not probably not going to get drawn next year's so you don't have 10, 20 years to figure sheep out in a particular area yeah. and then start getting good. You got one crack at it, throw a dart at a map and hope there's a big ram there. And then the province's response to a low resident harvest is to increase the number of permits to try to, you know, get X number of rams taken. So what I'm getting at with all of that is I think the dynamics would be the same in Alberta, you know, People like to go sheep hunting. If you're a sheep hunter, it's kind of like that's all you do is yeah. you just hunt sheep. You don't need to kill a sheep. So if they say, you know, you have to pass up those four-fifth curl rams or slightly and look for a full curl, but you still get it to be out there hunting sheep, I would think that's what most hunters would want is just the chance to be out there on the mountain glassing for rams, going, oh, there's some small ones, ha, ha, ha. Those were legal a few years ago. Now they're not. But anyways, we'll keep looking. And that I keeps, think a lot of people that would, addresses uh, your yeah. concern. Yeah. Keeping sheep yeah. And I think a lot of people would. Hunting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not very concerned about the lower success rate of, you know, people come from the rest of the province. But what I'm concerned about is you're losing the base of support for these people that are very, very pro sheep. One thing that is different between Alberta and BC is that Alberta, there's a lot of areas where there's no outfit 
uh, outfitter hunting of uh, bighorn sheep. So there's no outfitting south of the bow, for example. There's areas that are reserved uh, okay. to, uh, to resident. And I think a whole lot of people would have exactly the attitude that you've described. Okay, we need to find a full corral. Our success rate may be still lower, but still we can buy a sheep tag and go uh, sheep hunting. I think part of what's happening, the dynamics in Alberta is because there have been so much poison heaped on myself and on my work that a lot of the hunting group just refuse to believe the stuff we've been talking about. And so they see a move to full curl as admitting that there is an issue with evolutionary change of horn size. But a whole lot of people agree uh, with what you're saying. Of course, there are a lot of people too that will go and see a legal ram and say, oh no, that looks like a four or five year old, I'll pass it up. But with an unlimited number of permits and people coming from all over the province, chances are that ram's just gonna get shot the next day by somebody else. So, you know, especially in the area with relatively easy access, uh, the harvest rate is extremely high. Uh, you know, there's places in Alberta where you can drive along the valley, the bo bottom of the valley and glass up the slope. And, you know, when you have 10, 20 hunters doing that, the chance that the ram will survive. That's why when you look at when rams are getting shot, you know, it's the first four or five days of the season and then the last five or six days at the end. In the middle of the season, there's very, very few rams. Uh, that are getting shot because much of the new crop of legal ram is taken in the first week. And then the last week they take the ones coming out of our national parks. Right. Right. Okay. Now, so, so the question about, I just kind of want to talk a little, a little bit about the rams that come out of the parks. So there's the concept of genetic rescue. So you have a population of animals that lives over here and for whatever reason, their genetics aren't, let's just say, healthy. They're not diverse. Um, they, their population is shrinking. If you have animals coming in from outside populations and breeding, and I think most people can understand this, you're bringing in new genetics and genetic diversity and adding certain traits to a population is what gives animal populations like stability to cope with changes and, you know, and, and, and these sorts of things. The example um, I used on the last podcast was the grizzly bear population in Southwestern BC in the North Cascades, uh, the population shrinking, but also genetically it's shrinking there. The, the scientists have said there's no genetic flow coming into the North Cascades from other areas, highways, ski hills, Whistler, all of this sort of stuff. Grizzly bears are just no longer intermingling between populations. So the North Cascades are genetically bottlenecked unless they start breeding with their relatives. Um, they're a population that's headed to extinction. So in the case of Alberta, there's this reservoir <laughs> of sheep in the national parks that stay there until late October and they come out to find use in the rest of rest of the area. They have the potential to come in and mix the genetics up and, you know, keep things diverse and, and healthy. If you're saying now these rams are being shot before they get to the breeding grounds, do we know how many are being killed coming out of the parks? Like, is there, you know, 
a large proportion of the Rams killed in Alberta are in the last week or two of the season? Do we know that those park rams are getting so intensively harvested as well? They're they're never reaching the breeding grounds, or are we just talking like a okay? There's rams, two different questions. Pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. There's address. two different questions that you ask. <laughs> One is, do we know how many of these park rams are getting shot? Okay. Well, yep. what proportion? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, there is war going on in the parks now. They put some radio collar. We collected a bunch of fecal sample to try to get a handle of it. So, no, I, I don't know how many. Clearly, from the work that we've done in, for example, she previously had in Alberta, a lot of these movements happen after the hunting season stops, so after November. But about a third of these movements happen before the hunting season is closed. The second question you ask is, you know, is there a peak? Is there a lot of rams that are taken in late October? And that we know, and the answer is yes. So if you look at sort of the central part of the province of Alberta, uh, sort of Rocky Mountain House to Hinton and uh, from the from the Bow River, say between the Bow and the Athabasca River generally, the peak in the last week of the season is actually higher than the peak in the first week. So a huge proportion of the rams are getting shot in those last few days. And if you look at where they're getting shot, they're about, they're a few kilometers, well, on average, they're a few kilometers closer to the park boundaries. So there's no question that a lot of park rams are getting shot. That we know. What is the proportion that we don't know? You also talked about genetic rescue and one other study that we did recently was looking at uh, the extreme uh, northern distribution of Baker sheep in Alberta, uh, the Wilmer Wilderness area, where we don't see this peak at the end of the season, partly because by late October in most years it's winter and there's no vehicle access, so anti-pressure is much lower. And the local biologists figure that probably the harvest rate of legal rams in that area is maybe the order of 30%. So it's probably lower than elsewhere in the province. And we do see a tiny bit of evidence of the decline in horn size in that area is not as strong as uh, in the rest of the province are still declining. Uh, but that does suggest that a combination of lower hunting pressure and genetic rescue from the national parks would probably to some extent alleviate the problem. The other thing that I have to underline is you know, we should fix this, but we can't expect it to be fixed in two or three years. It's going to take a long time to reverse several decades of very, very intense selective hunting. Uh, but, you know, it's a bit like when we talk about global warming, the sooner we start, the sooner we fix it. <laughs> right, right. Now, one of the questions, or uh, this question, uh, I'll get you to address. So, horn horn size has decreased a portion of that is due to evolutionary changes from intense hunting pressure uh, the others uh, we talked about this earlier were due to density and climate and 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 some other variability so those things are natural like throughout the history of every every animal like you know, there's good growing seasons and bad growing seasons and good winters and periods of high predation and low predation. And all of that is like ebbing and flowing and putting pressure on 
animals fitness the growth of their horns their antlers like all of that um there's this small portion which is a change that's being driven by humans um under selective hunting pressure we know this happens in the ocean with commercial fishing targeting the biggest mm-hmm. tuna and you know those we've we've seen that or science has reported that uh in other areas as well now the portion of the horn shrinkage that's due to evolutionary change from the selective hunting pressure if that is left unabated business as usual is there any consequences to the future of bighorn sheep their sustainability their populations their existence on the land or are we just talking about animals that in a hundred years from now have very small horns versus big horns used to have big horns. Um, kind of like yeah. the reverse of the, of the domestic sheep one, right? Where they've done all of this interbreeding yeah. to make big ones where a hundred years ago, they used to be, they used to be really little. So the, so the main question is, is this detrimental to sheep as a species or just to the fact they're going to have smaller horns in the future? So the part of your question that I can answer based on some pretty strong data is that they're going to have small horns in the future. Uh, the next thing I suspect we're going to start seeing in Alberta is fewer and fewer six-year-olds are going to be legal. And the harvest rate is going to go down because if the horn is smaller, more rams will just never make it to legal horn size. But the key question is, you know, so what? I mean, uh, hunters are shooting themselves in the foot by, you know, having sheep with smaller horns or there are other consequences and when you look at the genetic structure of bighorn sheep these uh, genetic quantitative genetic characteristics that are associated with larger horns tend to be associated with uh, larger body size higher uh, lamb production in the use higher lamb survival so there is a possibility that you are really decreasing sort of the genetic quality of uh, the population. I'm calling that a possibility because even though we have data suggesting this genetic correlation, we cannot say that that is happening. We don't have data from the study population say, look, we have evidence of a genetic decline in lamb production or lamb survival or, or, or body size. One thing that we did recently was look at what are the effect of horn size in uh, females in use. Uh, horn size is obviously inherited from both your father and your mother. So uh, 50% of it comes from your dad and 50% from your mom. Um, fem- and uh, horn size in females is genetically correlated with horn size in males, meaning that if the you had a large horn father, she's likely to have bigger horns than if the you had the lar- small horn father. And if they're bigger horns, they start breeding earlier. That is one factor that affects population dynamics. So we do have some evidence that this may lead to some population consequences. And of course I'm worried about it, but while I can tell you definitely, there is no question in my mind that horns are smaller now because of an evolutionary change. There is a lot of question in my mind about whether that's going to have some population dynamics effects. Okay. So we just don't know. Right. Right. But they might. Now on that, on that topic, I'm glad, glad you brought it up about the female genetics. So this is one of the um, 
the counter arguments or the criticisms I've heard from your, your critics <laughs> on your work is hunting is only selecting the males. They're only shooting the males. Uh, and then you're saying that intense selective pressure is causing or is responsible for part of the horn shrinkage over the last, you know, several generations of sheep. How is the hunting of the males counteracting the contribution of those genes that grow, that cause, you know, big horns that's coming from the ewes? Well, because you're not shooting the ewes. Like, yeah. So folks are saying they should well, still they are shoot- flow into the ram should yeah. still be there. Yeah, kind sure. Of- the, the concept, I guess. Yeah, and that and that is true. Uh, what people sometimes forget is that, like most mammals, bighorn sheep have one father and one mother. So it doesn't matter what is the sex ratio in the population; each individual has one father and one mother. What you just said means that the selective pressure brought on by the trophy hunt is half as strong because it's only affecting one sex, males. So if it was affecting both sexes, it would be twice as strong, which means that it's weaker as opposed to a situation where both sexes were selected against large horns. But it remains that all those ewes have a father, and that father is being selected by the intense removal of large horn rams to have small horns. So while it is true that because sexual reproduction and because there's females involved, um, essentially the, the evolutionary impact of the hunt is being halved. It's half as strong as if it was affecting both sexes. That doesn't mean that it's weak. And one, I mean, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of controversy about this. And some people have even said, well, you know, sheep population, most of the animals you see are females, so the males play smaller roles. And that reveals a basic lack of understanding of how biology works, because it doesn't matter how many females you have and how many males you have, each individual has one dad and one mom. So 50% comes from your your father. But but you're right. Um, If the selection was on both sexes, it would be twice as strong. Okay, so so you're... Your, your Ram Mountain work showed over like three generations of sheep that the, that the evolutionary change from intense hunting selective pressure was two point, about 2.6 centimeters? About two, about two and a half centimeters, yeah. So the horns were about two and a half centimeters shorter than what they were 25 years ago. It's kind of, it's- no, they were a lot shorter because there were environmental effects. What yeah. we isolated was that the genetic contribution to the decline was two and a half centimeters. What's and then when you transport yeah. it over the broader, yeah, b- about, it's always calculated with a certain amount of it, uncertainty. It's somewhere yeah. between two and three. Uh, okay. So, you know, there's a lot of variable that come in there. But the key point that I want to make is that the strong decline in the sort of amount that was caused by a tripling of the number of ewes, doubling of the population. Mm. What we see over the whole province is a decline in horn size of about two to three centimeters. Uh, you know, once you come for age and uh, let's uh, ignore for the, for the moment the fact that, you know, the data you get from the 
rams that are shot are biased because you cannot shoot small horn rams. But overall, the sheep population in Alberta has been stable for about 30 years. And what we know about climate change, it should favor larger horns, not is not causing the shrinking of the horns in, the, in, in sheep. So when you look at the extent over the whole province, even though we don't have the detailed genetic data, it's hard to imagine what else could have caused this decline in horn size other than the evolution effect of the intense selective hunt. And we see a stronger decline in the southern part of the province where there's better access, where there is probably a much more intense uh, selection against uh, legal rams. Um, in some of the northern parts, as I said, the, the decline is much weaker, presumably because a lot more large horn rams survive to uh, breed as seven and eight year olds. Right. So if there were also permits, say, for, for use, which there is in some places in Alberta, mm -hmm. um, but if there was a pretty liberal season on you harvest and hunters said, well, if I'm going to shoot a you, I might as well pick the one out with the biggest horns in the herd, <laughs> being human nature, that that would potentially um, like double that effect from two and a half to like five centimeters would be the evolutionary change. So, so that's what you were saying, right? Like, because the hunting pressure is only on yeah, the males, in, I mean, the result you're seeing is yes, in half of the evolutionary yeah. effect that could have taken place. Yeah, but the thing is that even if the hunter was a U permit, once a U with large horns, uh, he's probably just going to shoot an older U. Uh, so that might have less of a, you know, okay. less of an effect because the key point with the rams is not just the large horned rams are getting shot; they're getting shot before they can breed. And uh, the number of U permit in Alberta has been curtailed enormously compared to you know when I used to live there. And part of the reason why biologists have decreased the number of uh, permits is because of concern about uh, numbers. And in many areas, there is an increase in, uh, probably an increase in predation. Uh, so uh, right. again, like I was saying, you know, we were chatting before, if you have a growing population of bighorn sheep and you want to harvest five to 7% of the ewes, fine. We have shown a amount that that's perfectly sustainable. But if your population is being limited by predation or by disease and you have a use season, you're just compounding the problem because you're not going to get a density, density dependent response. You're just going to see a faster decline in numbers. Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, this may be the last thing to, to touch on in this episode is like your, your work has been, it's been scrutinized I'll use two words. It's been criticized in the hunting community and in popular magazines and, and outside of academia. It's been scrutinized within the, you know, the, the peer review process, the, um, the rebuttals and, and stuff. How, and, and that's, a, that's a healthy part of science, right? Like you as a scientist, you produce something, other people say things about it. You're, you know, like it, it's, that's mm -hmm. how knowledge grows, right? Like you get to put something out and it kind of gets batted around uh, in, in the scientific circles. And then hopefully that process at the end, if there's changes or modifications, society benefits it because a whole bunch of people have improved 
science by pointing some things out and some things get changed and stuff. Overall, how has that process been for you? Like, you know, you've been involved in lots of research. You probably value peer review, you know, feedback and some changes and tweaks and stuff that are, that are made. That's your scientist. That's part of science. But in this particular case, how has that whole entire criticism and sort of peer scrutiny of your work been for you? Well, there's two different aspects to that. And one is the peer review in the scientific literature. And they're essentially, um, you know, we published this result in some of the best journals in ecology and evolution. And there's a very broad consensus among scientists that, yeah, this is happening. And, you know, it's always kind of interesting because when I talk to wildlife management audience, it's like, you know, this is an attainment. No, we don't want to hear about this. It, this can't be. When I talk to evolution biologist audience, it's kind of like the, you know, what do you expect? You got a <laughs> heritable trait with very strong selection. You keep doing that for four or five generations. You know, we've known about evolution since the time of Darwin. So this is kind of boring. You know, it's, it's like exactly what you would expect. Uh, all the arguments that have been presented, uh, it's climate change, it's density. One, they've been speculation, mostly data free. And two, they've generally been shut down. So now we're left with the situation where people that criticize my work at the sort of scientific level are down with the argument, well, I don't like it. Uh, there was a modeling paper that was published in the Journal of Wildlife Management a few years ago that claimed that what I found is uh, theoretically impossible. We've reanalyzed the data using that model. That model predicts exactly what we found on a mountain. So there has been a lot of uh, questionable practices, even in some of the scientific literature in terms of uh, what's been put out. What I found personally very difficult is that, uh, you know, I thought I was a part of the sheep management community and I've been dragged through the coals. And uh, it's changed over time. Most wildlife biologists now agree with me, but, you know, this is not going to go anywhere unless I can convince hunters that this is an issue. As long as hunters are being told, you know, this is the devil, don't listen to him. Is an anti-hunter scum. Uh, I, I see that as a big problem because that's not what I am. And I'm just trying to say, look, we can have sustainable trophy hunting of mountain sheep. We just can't kill 80% of the legal rams every year. Uh, so that, that has affected me to some extent, but certainly it's been very different in terms of the scientific literature where, you know, like I said, what I found is quite broadly accepted. Um, and sort of the hunting community, there's still a lot of resistance. The other thing that has upset me to some extent is that the work that I've done has been taken over by anti-hunting types to say, well, any kind of selective hunting leads to evolution and, you know, disaster extinction of the species. And uh, that is clearly something that is not what I've ever said. And it, it has been manipulated in that uh, in that sense. And that's why I like to underline that, you know, it's easily fixable this problem just don't kill it's not so much don't kill as many don't have this kind of selective harvest that is really based on how fast your horns grow yeah yeah and and i've seen some other you know stuff it was a video that you a seminar that you did for the bc wildlife federation uh where you were talking about um it was, was it 
Ibex in Switzerland, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. where, you know, they're harvesting a fair number of, of rams, but they have these very strict quotas on various age classes of, of rams. So it's yeah. very controlled in the sense that they're not targeting a very specific trait and, and intensively uh, hunting that. And I think you gave the example where like the, the age class of ram that you get a permit for is like, if you're a younger hunter, you're supposed to take a, a younger age class ram. And if you're like an old hunter, then you're restricted to taking yeah. an, an, an older yeah. ram. So the biologists are saying we're spreading out, we're, we're getting different groups of hunters to take rams from different age groups to prevent a selective pressure on a, on a particular yeah. age bracket. And, and so in that case, you know, they were harvesting, you know, pretty intensively, but I think you said there was no evolutionary change because the way they were structuring no. that, that age class harvest. No. So it was super interesting. There's other, other ways out there, I guess, is, is my point there. Yeah. And you know, it's Switzerland, so you know, they got a different tradition and, uh, yeah. but again, in this particular case, Ibex were reintroduced, you know, they went extinct almost everywhere in the Alps. They were reintroduced, initiated an extremely conservative hunt. People are used to the idea that, oh, you know, we have to handle carefully the species, but in this, uh, in the Grison, uh, if you get drawn for a Ibex male license, which if you're lucky, you get drawn about every 12 to 15 years, you can't kill the male until you kill the female. Okay. And then you're restricted to a certain age, uh, age group, which as you said, is somewhat related to your own, uh, to your own age. So if I live there, I'd probably be, because I'm an old fart, I'd be allowed to take a 10 or uh, 10 or 12 year old, uh, big male, but somebody yeah. younger like Curtis would have to take a four year old. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Cause it's sort of like when you reach that age, right. You're like, Oh, I'm not climbing up after there, after that <laughs> big old ram. Uh, there the is selection like, of. Oh man, there's a huge ram on the top of the mountain, yeah. but you know I, I can't can get it. Take one yeah. of these young ones that live down. It, yeah. It's kind of like physically, it, it's reverse. So maybe that's part of it. It's uh, and there's know, selection among. You know the old. <laughs> yeah, there's selection among the hunters as well. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they still showed that even though your license said you have to take a ram age, a male age between four and six they tended to take large five-year-olds because they wouldn't take a six-year-old because the probability that they would make a mistake and take a seven-year-old, then they would get a fine and they would avoid the four-year-old because they have smaller horns. So they're still trying to get, you know, as big a horns as they can within, within that group. Class. But yeah, okay. the, the difference, sense. the average difference, the average difference was like half a centimeter. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, you know, I think maybe one of the things that I kind of found interesting is, you know, I was reading some chat forums in Alberta, hunting chat forums, and I actually saw a fair bit of, like, concern expressed by at least the hunters that participated in chat forums, you know, about the four-fifth curl. And a lot of hunters that, you know, I read the posts of, I don't know what percentage that represents of, you know, like the sheep hunting community, but you know, they were echoing, you know, a lot of these concerns about, you know, the four-fifth curl, these, you know, we're, 
you know, five-year-old rams and it's like, why can't we leave them till, you know, so they have a mm -hmm. chance to breed and, you know, and, and so on and so on. And, and so, you know, I think there is a segment of the, of the population out there that in Alberta, at least that seems to have a concern about, about this, whether or not it's coming from your research or the talk about it, or just their intuitions about the hunting regulations and knowing that, they're targeting younger rams and that the concept in North America is to take eight year old or older rams and they're seeing the, yeah. the sort of the uniqueness or the difference in Alberta and going something, something's not right. So yeah, I think, I think there is, um, you know, some interest, some concern in the hunting community there and hopefully maybe some folks will, you know, hear you you talk about your work and um the previous episode there they listened to dr boyce um and some of his ideas and and folks can put you know together be better informed about a whole range of topics uh especially for you know alberta um i think that's where the central part of this yeah, discussion is and it's definitely changing uh like i said most of the wildlife biologists in alberta agree that this is an issue and that's maybe part of the reason why opinions are changing within the hunting public. And there's certainly a larger proportion of the hunting public that is looking at the controversy and starting to see, well, who's got data and who's just sprouting opinions. And then they start saying, well, the data suggests that there is evolutionary, uh, evolutionary change. So it's definitely changing. It's nowhere near as bad as it was, uh, uh, you know, 20 years ago when the nature paper first, uh, first came out, where really everybody, including most wildlife biologists, thought it was the devil. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's encouraging. The fact remains that, you know, with an open over-the-counter permit system, you can decide to pass up a ram because, oh, it's a five-year-old, I let him live. You have no control as to whether the next person is just going to shoot him because 80% of the people who harvest the sheep in Alberta have just shot the first sheep. So there's a whole lot of people that have been out for years and years, they've never taken a sheep. They see a legal ram, it takes some fortitude to say, I'm not going to shoot. And, you know, mm -hmm. not everybody's going to do that. Yeah. Particularly when you know if I don't kill it, somebody else will. So, yeah, no, true. Well, hopefully, through this, these series of podcasts that we put out, um, folks can get, you know, um, better educated, better informed on the mountain sheep. Um, you know, hunting induced evolutionary change, you know, uh, the whole entire topic from a bunch of different sides, the next episode on focus on doll sheep in the Northwest territories, uh, but still mountain sheep. And yeah, our, our goal here is just to give people information and hear, you know, different scientists talk about this topic from different angles. And, and hopefully that creates a better informed hunting public and, and uh, those are the people, like you said, that are really the voice, yeah. um, you know, in, in driving change with, with hunting regulations and management. So that's what we're trying to do. And uh, really appreciate you coming back on the show, Marco, and and uh, teaching us again. I think to you, whether it's on a podcast or, you know, uh, a, a WhatsApp chat or uh, on, on Twitter or whatever, I just, I learned something. And that's why I think this is the first time ever we've had a guest back on to talk about the same thing twice. Cause it's just, for me, it's really helping me understand 
this better by going over and over it. So I appreciate you uh, doing that. Um, and hopefully you don't feel like you're repeating yourself, um, but you are, but it's helping it stick in my head. So. No, I, I, I appreciate it because I, like I said, you know, if this is going to have any positive outcome, I need to talk to hunters. So, you know, you can also tell your uh, meat hunter buddy that I'm quite happy to talk to him. I'm happy to talk to anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, no, meat, meat, meat eater, not meat hunter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've, yeah. yeah, I've, I've heard them, like I said, a couple at the beginning of the show, a couple times um, talk about this and they've had other guests on the show talking to it. And I'm kind of like, Jesus seems pretty obvious. Why not go to the person that did the research and get it straight from them? And um, so I've tried a couple times. Uh, interesting enough, it. though, you know, the first articles that I saw written, you know, a number of years ago, uh, you know, and I said, like, I reached out to one of the authors and I'm like, man, you're, uh, I know Marco and, and I don't think you're representing his work right. But like a year or two later, I saw articles republished again. Um, they were actually from, from Meat Eater that had a very uh, different take on this topic and they were acknowledged your work for being real uh being published in the peer-reviewed literature so it's science and we accept it and um you know what does that mean to other areas and if i kind of recall the you know the flavor of the article was is like most places in north america aren't doing what you say is the concern so um yeah. you know that was a bit a bit of solace but it was making people yeah. look around and i think as a scientist that's what you want saying I studied this in one small part of the world. These are the principles at play. And wildlife managers pick that up and go, geez, are, are we doing that here? No, okay, good. Yeah. And I think that's what I would want as a scientist or people to say, you know, are we, are we committing these problems and can we fix our program or are we doing the best practices? So, you know, I think that's, that's good that I saw a little bit of a change in, in, uh, in a couple of years down there between one article and the next one. So progress is slow. <laughs> Keep working at it. You bet. Marco, thanks so much for coming on. Um, appreciate it. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by J. Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, B.C., fantastic work that jesse has you guys should check it out we've been a few months now more than a few months when did he become on september i think was when he yep started with us yeah yeah so it's been it's been quite a while if you guys haven't checked him out make sure you go check out his instagram at j martin taxidermy he's got a website jmartintaxidermy.com check him out on facebook give him a follow go check out some of his work and maybe you got some uh maybe maybe you got a big horn this year and you want to get it mounted up and you're just looking for the right place to get it done, make sure you check out Jesse because he does some phenomenal, outstanding work. And as always, we're very grateful for the support that he is giving us here at the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So thank you, Jesse. Thank you. And uh, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot. Hopefully you guys did too listening. And uh, we will see you in the next episode.